Welcome to The Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students, post-secondary students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. So glad you're here. Welcome, or welcome back to the podcast. We've got a really timely and hope-filled message here on what are we waiting for, featuring Cody Matchett, pastor, teacher, and scholar at Tehillah here in Calgary. We hope this message nourishes your theological imagination. Good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible or device, Revelation 19 is where we will land, so you can open to it. I will go there uh, in a few minutes, not just yet. I just want to say thank you for allowing me to be with you. Thank you to Bob and to Kelly and to others of you for uh, having me and inviting me. It's, uh, It's a privilege to get to have these conversations. And as Bob mentioned, you're asking some big questions and some important questions. And what are we waiting for is one of those questions. Uh, we are in Advent season now. We'll talk about that in a minute. Those of you who did not grow up with church calendar, if you grew up uh, like me as a pagan, or maybe, and now I'm an ex-pagan, but, uh, you know, or maybe you did grow up with the calendar or you didn't, uh, I want to talk about the calendar a bit tonight. In Advent, uh, we can... You know, there's lots going on in the world. Today's the first day of Hanukkah. I don't know if you all know that or not. Uh, But that uh, draws to mind lots of things that are happening in our world also, as we know, conflict and pain and turmoil all over the globe. And not just all over the globe, but in our city also. And as I've been saying to my students lots lately as we look at the world, there is a suffering problem at work in our world, and there is a death problem at work in our world. And part of what we believe fundamentally as followers of Jesus, you mentioned those in the room who want to uh, follow you wherever you go. I don't know if you know, maybe speaking better than you know tonight, that's Revelation 14.3. These martyrs are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a revelation line. Um, That that our great hope is that actually uh, Jesus will return and he will uh, put the worlds to right. And so we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. And I'll try not to bore you too much. Uh, Page one of that handout, I try to give you a handout instead of slides. Uh, When we get to the second page of the handout, don't worry. All those footnotes are for you to read to put yourself to sleep tonight a little bit later if you want to read them. Or if we don't have time to discuss some of the details of things that I mentioned, I give you some rabbit trails to follow if you're the type of person who likes to follow rabbit trails. I want to begin here. Advent, the season that we are now in, begins in darkness. Advent begins in darkness. Advent, as Bob mentioned, means coming. Uh, This term Advent has been used as on the handout for centuries to describe a particular season of the church calendar within which we now find ourselves. And for four weeks that lead up to the birth of this royal Emmanuel child, the one we call Jesus of Nazareth, what we do is we situate ourselves in the darkness of the cosmos and we once more await the dawning of a great light. Put differently, in distinction from Lent, which begins in light and descends into darkness as we travel with Jesus, as he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to be crucified, as we take that journey with him, in Advent, we put ourselves back in darkness and we ask ourselves the question, what are we waiting for and will the light come? Advent is about putting ourselves in the darkness and to begin to watch and to wait and to anticipate the dawning of a great light. 
It's uh, the theologian and priest Fleming Rutledge in her great book on Advent puts it this way once more on the handout. Advent begins in the dark and moves towards the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. Quote, how great is the darkness. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. The darkness within and the darkness without. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. I don't know how hard you have to work tonight to find darkness in our world or to find darkness in yourself. But the season of Advent is one that actually asks us to sit there a little longer, uncomfortably. I find uh, as Protestants and as evangelicals, we're often very bad at this practice. But we know that Jesus has come. So why celebrate Good Friday when you could just celebrate Resurrection Sunday on the Friday? I don't know if you've noticed, you, many of you like me have probably never really been to a Good Friday service before. You've been to a prelude of the Resurrection Sunday service. Similarly, Advent has become a synonym for Christmas. But they could not be more different. Advent and Christmas are not the same thing at all. Advent is where we say the darkness is here and I'm going to sit uncomfortably in it a little bit longer. And I'm going to wonder, will Jesus be born to me again? I'm going to wonder, will Jesus come back to all of us again? We could spiritualize that and say in this season as I wait, will, when I reach Christmas, will, will Jesus be born to me once more? We could also ask it maybe more cosmically and say, will he return to us again? And we'll come back to that in a minute. What does the first advent teach us about the second advent? But now let me quote another priest who is a poet, Malcolm Geith, who I once heard say this, Advent is about abstaining from distractions, from sidelights and sidelines. Advent is a time for dwelling richly in the darkness and thinking as you wait, what is it I really long for? What is it I am after? So Rutledge informs us that we are to take inventory of the darkness, and Geit invites us to ask the question as we're taking inventory of the darkness, what is it that I'm really waiting for? And so I think Advent then hits us in three movements in one way, shape, or form. Advent invites us to uh, do some retrospective work, to think back to this moment where we are awaiting the arrival of Jesus. It also then in our present context, context asks us, as Rutledge puts it, to take fearless inventory of the darkness right now in our present. But I think it's not just retrospective, but it's prospective. And, and by that, I just mean the first advent invites us to think about the second one, that Jesus came, that he was born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and descended to the dead, but that as we just confessed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead, that he will return. 
And the interesting thing, the convergence of questions for us tonight are threefold at least, and we won't really answer all of these directly, but I think we'll swirl around them lots, both as we look at Revelation 19 and then we have broader discussion together. In the midst of, of all the darkness, what are we waiting for? Is there a danger to say that even as Christians, as followers of the Lamb, as those who want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, that, that maybe there's the danger that we ourselves have lost the plot? that we've lost vision for where this whole thing is going. That maybe part of the difficulty of knowing how to live right now is we don't really know where the story's going. So what are we waiting for? Second, what does the first advent teach us about the second advent? And that question is important because Jesus comes in a very inconspicuous way. Are you with me? He's born to a poor family. He's born uh, as a baby, this royal child. The very nature of his birth was questioned. You know, it seems as though some of the religious elite call or at least imply that Jesus himself is a mamzer, which is just the Hebrew word for bastard, that Jesus is an illeg illegitimate child. And yet, for some reason, we say he came like a lamb, but when he returns... He will come as a lion. In fact, there is a very infamous church pastor who, uh, there was a, a video of him recently circulating where he was in true fashion screaming as loud as possible. The first time he came as a lamb, but the second time he will come as a lion. And he's going to slay down everybody I don't like. <laughs> That's effectively what that means. That yeah, he may have come uh, as one who bore the brunt of judgment and gave his life to make peace. But when he comes later, what he wants is bloodshed to make peace. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of cognitive dissonance with that. And I actually think that what you get is, yeah, the gospel says this, but the way that I read Revelation is going to say something different. But the problem is that's not a very good way to read Revelation. I might say, actually... It's a pretty horrific way to read Revelation. That actually, the boy who was born to the virgin uh, is the same one who will return to judge. And there is a connection between the reality of his identity from then to the future. I'll go further and say, this is one of the ways in which Scott and I disagreed in writing our book on Revelation. I would go as far to say, actually, that Jesus is never the lion. He's all lamb. Here's why I think that, because in Revelation chapter 5, John says, and then I heard the voice of one who said that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. I heard. And when I turned, what I saw was a lamb that was slaughtered but standing. Ah, so John never sees the lion. He only sees a lamb. So while you know, he's the lion and the lamb, great worship song. It might be the case, actually, that he accomplishes what the lion of the tribe of Judah is to accomplish, Genesis 49, as a lamb. It might be that he fulfills the prophecy, but in a way that you don't expect. And that uh, subversion of our expectations is true of the first advent, and we're going to see in Revelation 19, it also subverts our expectations for the second advent. But third, I ask the question, how can our imagination 
Help us inhabit the time between the times. I'll say a little bit about this because we might not get much to it because we'll run out of time because Revelation 19 is a fun text. But I think one of the greatest threats that we are facing as the church in the West right now is uh, the co-opting or stealing away of our imagination. In other words, when you live in a city and you live in a nation and you live under an empire uh, and you swim within cultural waters, you begin to imagine uh, that the only solutions that are possible are the solutions that are right in front of you and presented before you. Unless we vote this particular way, and bring in our particular candidate, or unless we legislate in this way, God's kingdom could never come. And I would say, have we not lost our imagination for what's possible in allowing the Spirit to inspire us to dream different dreams than the ones that are before us? I think that the prophetic imagination, and I mean that in its technical sense, has largely been lost right now. And I think we need to recover. So what I want to do then uh, with these questions is go to Revelation 19, read it together, and then make five brief observations that I see happening here, and then we can go to discussion after I give a summary. Does that sound okay? So I'm going to read the text. Uh, you're welcome to read yours or the one on the page. Revelation chapter 19, then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, its rider called Faithful and True, and by means of justice, righteousness, dekaiosune, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many diadems were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod, Psalm 2. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, Emperor of Emperors and Lord of Lords. So again, we sit in darkness together during this Advent season. And if this is your first Advent, welcome to the darkness. We look back on the fact that Jesus came in a way that I actually think is uh, awe-inspiring, that this is God, this is the way God comes to us. And then we look forward from our darkness and we ask the question, what are we waiting for? And this is a famous text. This is a famous Advent text. This is a famous parousia text, would be the technical you know, seminary word for it. This is the great return text. And so what we see then, John uh, has a vision. I don't know if you've read Revelation recently. John has visions. An apocalypse has happened, uh, which uh, apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. Don't worry. Uh, it means the pulling back of the curtain, the unveiling. This is the unveiling of Jesus. That's what John is writing about. He's not writing about the end of the cosmos, but rather about this great revelation of Jesus, this apocalypse of Jesus. Paul will use this very same term to describe his Damascus Road experience when he's writing to the churches in Galatia. 
He will say that the Messiah was apocalypse to him. So he'll use this term. And so John's having another one of these visions where, where he's seeing, he's seeing God's future and he's seeing what God will do. And, and he's trying to, to bring that to bear on these seven churches in Western Asia Minor. If this is what God is going to do ultimately, then, then how does it determine how we live now? And what are we waiting for? Well, first, we're waiting for heaven to emerge. The language that John uses here is not just so much that it's like, a door opened and sort of a white rider came through. But actually, the language that John is using is more like heaven is now invading the earth here. The rider on the white horse is coming. This is Jesus. There has been universal agreement and interpretation for a long time that this white rider is himself Jesus. He is emerging unexpectedly, similarly to his first advent, as the ruler of the cosmos. I say unexpectedly because go try to tell other people in our city that one day the heavens are going to emerge and the true ruler of the cosmos is going to come riding in. And they'll wonder what's going on with you. This is unexpected. We could say it's expected in that we know that he will return because he said he will return. But cosmically, and this is where John's working on a cosmic scale, this is unexpected that the white rider comes, we're waiting for heaven to emerge and the ruler of the cosmos to come. We're waiting for Jesus' return for heaven to emerge, which is more than just Jesus coming back, but actually God reconciling the realms as heaven emerges once more. It's the same thing John's going to talk about in 21 and 22. That actually it's not that we're, um, we're skyrocketed somewhere else, but actually heaven comes here, that Jerusalem comes down, that the reconciliation of the realms, that heaven and earth are no longer divided, but God's dwelling is fully with people. But for that dwelling to happen before 21 and 22 can come, before God can, can do the work of making all things new, and notice they're not all new things, but making all things new. Before God can do that work, uh, ju justice must first be served. Judgment must first come. And by that I mean evil itself must be fully eradicated. So we're waiting for heaven to come, but we're also waiting for the rider who will wage war. Now, there is a danger here, so let me quote uh, the great scholar Richard Borkham and say, what John likes to do is use militaristic language in a non-militaristic sense. Let's wait on what the waging war looks like because it's not quite what you expect. It's not quite what that megachurch pastor thinks is going to happen. I know this because it says he comes... And he, he, go back to the text with me, it says, uh, he is called faithful and true, and by means of justice, by means of righteousness, he judges and wages war. So this is justice-bringing activity. It's not simply a gruesome bloodbath for the sake of, you know, slaying down God's enemies, but it, it's actually a, a putting to rights. And judgment is a part of that work. Are you with me on that one? That, that evil needs to be judged as evil for justice to come. For peace to come, there must be justice. Because there's no justice with, you know, with no justice, there's no peace. And so he wages war, but the way he's going to do it is in justice 
and in judgment. Now, the war waging is interesting because there is a movement that follows him. Uh, 14.3, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. But, but John also here uses very gospel language because following language is the language of the gospels. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. So now as Jesus comes, as, as heaven emerges and he's preparing to wage war, an army is coming behind him. There is a movement of followers who are not doing the war waging. They're just following. What are we waiting for? Not for war waging. We will not be the war wagers. We'll get to ride white horses, which sounds a little uncomfortable to me. But don't worry, you'll get to wear white linen fine and clean. (laughs) And I look really good in white. I mostly wear black now because in the future I'll get to wear white linen fine and clean. I don't know about you, but if I was going to wage a cosmic militaristic war, I wouldn't have an army dressed in linen. If I wanted people to slay other people down, I wouldn't have them dressed in linen. Now, they're dressed in linen because these are the ones who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. These are are the ones who follow him. They're, They're in white because they're cleansed and they've been purified. They ride on white and they wear white. Don't worry, you won't have to wear white if that bothers you. John's using imagery here. And so he comes to wage war... But the first hint that the war waging by means of justice and judgment is different than we expect is because his entourage is not what we expect it to be. He, he's got an army of martyrs with him. He's got an army of martyrs with him. Then uh, John does the most shocking thing of all. Welcome, friends. And John does what David Matthewson calls reactualization. And here's what that means. John is in the business, in this great apocalypse of his, of taking your expectations and turning them upside down. He'll even sometimes, believe it or not, take well-known Old Testament texts and flip them on their head. What I mentioned about Jesus being a lamb instead of the lion, G.B. Carrot says this is one of the greatest reversals, this is one of the greatest imagistic reversals in biblical history. Something similar is happening here. Something strange is afoot because the white rider comes and he sounds pretty awesome. There's just one problem. His robe is dipped in blood. I don't know about you, but fighting wounded is not a good way to start. So what John is doing here is he's taking a pretty famous text in Isaiah 63. On the great and awesome day of Yahweh, Isaiah says, Yahweh is going to come, and we're going to ask Yahweh, why are you covered in blood? And Yahweh will say, because of the blood of the enemies that have been trampled. And that's what we expect. We expect God to be the one who will trample our enemies, our enemies, like my enemies. And yet what we learn in the first advent is that's not what happens at all, is it? Instead of taking down Rome, he's executed by Rome. And this is the great act of revolution. So when he emerges, whose blood is on his robe? Isaiah says it's going to be his enemies. The problem is, if you're a nerd like me, and don't worry, I left you a footnote to follow, 
you'll do a word study on blood in Revelation. Everyone's dream. How is chema used throughout the book of Revelation? And here's what you find. When it's not being used as a description to say the waters turned to blood or the moon turned to blood, it's always either the lamb's blood or the martyr's blood. Always. Those who wash their robes in the blood of the lamb. One five, we have been liberated by means of his blood. The martyr witnesses themselves covered in his blood. The blood blood that's in the cup of the woman who's riding on Rome, the one who's getting drunk in Revelation 17, she's getting drunk on the blood of the saints. She's getting drunk on the blood of those who have been killed because of their witness to Jesus. The city itself, much like many cities in the Hebrew Bible, are filled with blood, the blood of the prophets. So when Jesus comes, whose blood is on his robe? It's his blood, and it's the blood of the martyrs. Why is Jesus in a blood-soaked robe? Because, friends, the means of his victory and his war-waging and his conquering is by means of his blood. John's saying, you're expecting a war, but you're not going to get the kind of war you think you're going to get because it's already been conquered by means of his blood. And we will nikao, that's where we get Nike, we will overcome, we will conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our witness. So when he comes, John is reactualizing this scene. And what we're supposed to see here is that the reason why this rider will be victorious in the war that he is waging is because it's already won by means of his blood. He need not slay a single person or shed anyone's blood because he's already shed his own. And the sword that he's carrying is not in his hand. It proceeds from his mouth. And by his very word, justice will come. Justice will come. He wages war with his word. He is the word. The victory's won by means of his own blood. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the heavens to come. We're waiting for the rider who wages war. And by the way, let's see it. He doesn't wage war the way we do. We can thank God for that. He's followed by a movement, much like the Gospels, of those who are dressed in linen fine and clean. And he's soaked in his own blood. And John says that he is the emperor of emperors and the Lord of lords. He is faithful and true. He is the very word of God. So when he comes, he he will come in the midst of our darkness and we will see the great light of heaven bursting forth and his coming to wage war will be nothing more than speaking the word that finally puts all of this chaos to rights because he's already won by means of the cross and by means of his blood. He speaks a word and it ends. In fact... I like saying the kind of things I'm going to say next because people are always challenged and confused by it. I invite you to go read Revelation and see if any war or battle or Armageddon actually takes place. You will find it doesn't. They all gather and it stops. They try to fight, but there's no war to wage because it's already won. So we sit in darkness together, and we take stock of the darkness together. 
Rutledge invites us to look at the darkness. Fearlessly to look at the darkness, she says. I don't know about you, but I, I feel more like I'm fearfully looking at the darkness. There's a lot of it. She says, stare it down. Because until you see how dark the dark is, you'll never see the light. The light comes in a way that none of us would expect. This royal child, whom we hear, we're here, because we follow him or we're curious about him. If you read the Gospels, you'll recognize actually uh, a lot of people were really interested in Jesus. Jesus had the popularity of the crowds. I don't know if you've noticed the motif of the crowds in the Gospels. The crowds follow him everywhere. Mark will say, you know, all of Jerusalem and Judea, all the countryside are coming, like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people coming out, following Jesus, wanting to get near him. He comes in a way, though, we did not expect. And he will come again in a way that I actually think we should expect, but most often right now we don't expect. Because I think maybe we've lost the plot a little bit. And maybe our imagination has been so saturated by the darkness that we think the only way that God can solve this problem is the way we would solve this problem by inflicting more darkness. And woe to us for believing that what we're waiting for is for God to use darkness to put the worlds to rights. That's never God's prerogative. He bore it on the cross, and when he returns, his authority, that he is the emperor of emperor and lord of lords, that he is the faithful and true one, is because of his death, and it's by means of his blood. So we look back. We reflect together in three movements, retrospectively, that Jesus came. We're invited to fearlessly take inventory of the darkness, and then we're invited to look forward from the midst of our present darkness and say what we're waiting for is for God to emerge, for heaven to come, for a movement of martyrs to follow, for, for God to put the world to rights by the sword that proceeds from his mouth, that God will speak the word and all of this will end. But I'm here to warn you, it's going to take some real imagination. Revelation is imagination literature. As one scholar puts it, it's imagistic literature. It's not like reading Paul. I taught a class last night on Romans 9 to 11. It, it, that is the antithesis of the book of Revelation. This is like, how do we trace Paul's vexing argument using first century rhetoric? And John is saying, let me show you some pictures. <laughs> do you like Rembrandt? I do. Let me throw together all of these great visions of what God is going to do but also it's not going to happen just that way. Let me turn them this way just a little bit. And if you can see apocalyptically, you can actually see that what's coming, what we're waiting for is not more darkness, but it is the truest of true lights. It's the willingness to reverse evil by means of peacemaking and hope. And this is how we conquer. So in the midst of your darkness, then, I ask you what I find Geit asking me every year of Advent. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for more pain? Are you waiting for the people that you dislike? 
or who are against you to be slain down. The German word for that is schadenfreude. Are you waiting to celebrate over other people's comeuppance and grief? Or are you waiting for great, the great hope to emerge? The one who's already covered in blood, and so no more blood needs to be spilt. So much blood has already been spilt. The one who treads the winepress of the fury of God on his own. He doesn't need to tread anybody else. What the first advent teaches us is that the second advent will happen in a similar but very different way. That he will come, yes, apocalyptically, but he still comes as the slaughtered lamb. And he will rule the nations by means of an iron staff. Like this is Psalm 2. Yeah, this is Davidic royal language. He will come as the world's true king. That itself will be unexpected. And I wonder then for us, as we maybe transition to discussion, how, how might our imagination help us inhabit this moment we live in, this liminal space, this time between the times, because I actually think without imagination, we will become complacent and a little numb. And I actually think that taking inventory of all that darkness, you might actually be lost to that darkness. I don't know if you feel it, I feel it. The darkness is overwhelming. How great is the darkness? And it's gonna take imagination like real imagination. I know evangelicals uh, don't talk imagination very often. I don't understand why. I'm I thought that charismatics dealt in the imagination. Isn't that what, is, aren't we dealers in hope? Is that not what it's about? Yeah. And, except for the end. That's where it all, some crazy stuff that's believed there. This is in a, a footnote on page one, if you'll go there with me, just footnote six. I just want to read, these are the words of Walter Brueggemann from his great book, The Prophetic Imagination. I'll end with these words, and then Bob can take over and fix all my wrongs. <laughs> we need not ask whether it's realistic or practical or viable, but whether it's imaginable. We need to ask if our consciousness and imagination have been so assaulted and co-opted by the royal consciousness that we've been robbed of the courage or power to think an alternative thought. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination to keep conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. So maybe I tonight, like John, can do the real prophetic thing where real prophecy lies. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would stir your imagination for the great light that we are waiting for, that itself is not more darkness, but is the putting the world to rights. What we're waiting for, what we confess that we believe, is that God will come and he will fix this mess. And that he will rule as king of kings and lord of lords, but even greater plot spoiler, you read 21 and 22, we actually rule with him. That actually that Genesis 1 vision comes back to life. And the garden is back, but now it's a city. <laughs> Or as Brian Blunt says it, it's the urbanized garden. I actually think 1911 to 16, a section that we read together tonight, 
has all the same themes as 21 and 22. It's not different. It's just saying that the justice must come for the great city to come. So I'll end then and hand it over to Bob where John ends. And I'll say, uh, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. I've actually done quite a bit of work in imagination, but I find I was teaching a class just recently and how my students were resisting imagination. Yeah. It's Thank you. kind of an interesting thing. Uh, of course, our imaginations can be corrupted because of our sinfulness, yeah. but imaginative, imaginative faculty is deeply human. Yes. Um, anyway, so... Um, one of the course I used to teach was called The Christian Mind, and I would use movies, just regular movies. Yeah. Well, may I then? Yeah. I think that Revelation is like Christopher Nolan's Inception. <laughs> and I'm taking this from yeah. Jamie Davies, who's a great apocalyptic scholar. But I think that what we get in John is overlapping dreams within dreams within dreams, yeah. and visions within visions within visions. And the sequence is not always linear because sometimes the deeper dreams are happening at the same time as the not-so-deep dreams. And yet they all converge at a moment and at a place in time. So yeah, I think much like Nolan's films. I, I'm, I'm a big Nolan fan. If you're not, that's okay. Anyone see Tenet? And, and yeah, and yeah, and most of you didn't because you were like, I couldn't figure it out even if I tried, you know? And John is a little bit like Nolan, yeah. just, a, just this brilliant mind. I think the other piece that's interesting to me about that is I have felt that same resistance. Uh, even though Paul says that we need a conversion of our imagination, our mind. I mean, this is Paul's language to the house churches in Rome. Don't allow your patterns of thinking to be conformed to this era, but allow them to be transformed by the renewing of your imagination. And so I, I think that we've sort of missed that, sadly. So I just want, want to encourage, and then we'll take, start to take some questions here, but... So I, when I was working with students that way, and it often happens to me, I'm watching something. I can think back to an old show we used to watch with our kids on Sunday nights, uh, uh, Extreme House Makeover or something like that. <laughs> That's heaven, right? This complete makeover mm. of your space. And then, you know, Rudy, one of my favorite movies. I can never get Susan to watch with me. Uh, do you know Rudy? I do. Yeah. Oh, the, the twist right at the end. Uh, all these, all these wonderful uh, things, and I find myself many times crying watching something. All of a sudden, I've been caught by it. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's just a little picture, not, not, not in any depth, but just a little hint or a clue. Yeah. to the great reversal. Yeah, yeah. Revelation is like great art, which is why we misread it. We want to read it like Paul's letters, which are very didactic and rhetorical and all of those things. But Revelation is visceral. It wants you to feel. And the minute that you start overthinking the images, you'll miss them. Because yeah. you're actually supposed to feel them. Yeah. And so similarly, it's just, it's great art. You know, I, I often have said, when I, the first time I saw Rembrandt in person, again, you don't have to like Rembrandt, that's totally fine. But I, sa I sat there for an hour. You know, I was like, this is one of my favorite artists. I've got the times before I had kids. And I, I just sat. And it's, it's interesting what you notice in terms of layers and, and brushstrokes and beauty and how it does shift as you stare at it longer. So Revelation is, it is that. It's, 
It's images, it's poetry, it's, it's great. It's more like reading Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter than it is like reading Romans. It's like, it's like Marvel. My wife loves Marvel. Yeah. And we need all these sides of our, of our brains mm-hmm. and our inner selves. We need logic. We need of course. Of course. We need to choose. We need to feel. We need to act. Mm-hmm. Right? All these things. But this is just one of those, you know, because it's prophetic literature, and mm-hmm. prophet, the prophetic often deals with images. Oh, yeah, of course. But we'll, we'll get to, uh, Logan, you have a question or a comment? I was going to ask, how do we practically foster a growth of imagination or practically resist That's a great question. Can I answer? Please. We read imaginative literature. Mm-hmm. We train ourselves in poetry mm. and good, good fiction and, and, and story. And we allow this to percolate within us. Right, Stephanie? Yeah, Stephanie. Right, right. <laughs> but what would you say? Well, I think we need discernment. I just look, uh, re- but believe it or not, you know, Revel- maybe you know this, but re- Revelation is is the most. All all the books of 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 the scriptures have political elements to them, but this one is the most political. And this one sees great danger in the solutions that we try to offer. That actually behind Nero and behind the Roman system uh, lies the dragon himself. And that when you bow a knee to these systems and these structures, you're actually worshiping something far more insidious and draconian than you think. So I, I think part of it is, and the discernment piece comes back to, I think you need an apocalypse. I think that's what John would say. And then I think people like who are here who love Jesus have to actually start doing the actual heart of prophetic ministry, which to Brueggemann's point is to stir imagination. I think he's right. The other thing about the imagination of John here is he's soaked in the scriptures. What's the percentage? I've heard various numbers of what percentage of Revelation is actually allusion or citation to the scriptural text. Yeah, so he very rarely cites, but they would say somewhere between 300 and 600 allusions to the Hebrew Bible. Which is? Which is at least about three per verse. Right. So it's, it's the majority of the text, far more than the majority. So it's a scripturally soaked mind that then is has a, then there, there's a faithful imagination mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's scripturally soaked. Yeah, I think that piece too of um, it's it's uh, let's use modern psychological language. That's what I try to use. Like John's ma- John's maps of meaning, like his ways of seeing reality and configuring the world, are the scriptures. Yeah. Like he understands how to live and how to breathe and move based on the scriptures. So then when he writes these texts, he's always referring. Because those are his reference points, right? His reference points are this great story of God. He's also playing on Roman imagery at the same time. It's, it's very sophisticated, but there is so much Hebrew Bible at work here. Uh, to the point that, you know, many scholars, like, you know, Eugene Peterson, uh, in his great book, Reverse Thunder, would say there's, there's almost nothing new here in Revelation, except the way that it's, it's reconfiguring or reactualizing the imagery. Yeah. Do you think that the, the present view of interpretation of the book of Revelation has made us lazy. It's almost the quote here is talking about um, we need to ask if our if our consciousness and imagination is so been insulted and co-opted by the royal 
consciousness, the, the thought of the day that um, the book of Revelation has been viewed as Romans in a very linear, mm-hmm. uh, scientific way so that basically there's no surprises anymore. We already know everything that's going to happen. And, and could it be that, that that makes us very lazy in the area of imagination? Mm-hmm. And where, you know, I look at the world around me where we've had tremendous things happen in the last three or four years, and there are those who who think that they know everything that is going on according to, you know, a pre-scripted interpretation yeah. of the book of Revelation. Um, but I think there is humility, you know, that we've yeah. come to a place where, could it be, could it be that there is so much darkness in this world that we actually do not really understand what has been going on? Yeah. That there's a, an assumption that we do, and I think maybe it's made us lazy. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is, is this what you're kind of referring to with this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that, um, so let me just say, we, so in our book, we call them speculators, people who speculate about the signs and the times and the seasons and the days. And every one of them has been wrong. 88 reasons why it's happening in 1988. Have you read it? <laughs> I was born in 89, so thank God it didn't happen. It was a big deal back in the day. But this is it. It's, um, you know, in, in the first few chapters of our book, we, <laughs> we go after Billy Graham. Just to make a point of saying the number of people who are beloved and wonderful, but who will stand before people and say, I've, I, I can see the signs of the times. It's going to happen in 1.5 years on this day. And then 1.5 years later, he says, I'm correcting it, actually. <laughs> like, this is all documented, yes? Sure. Look, every single person who's read Revelation that way has not only been wrong, but they failed to realize that other people have also read it that way and were wrong. If you'd lived through the Holocaust, you would believe it was happening too. So like all of these, like something else is afoot here, and it's about how does one live faithfully in the midst of Babylon, which was Rome for John. It's not Rome for us, but it is Roman Babylonian type structures. There is no antichrist in Revelation. I'm sorry, I know you think there is, there is not. There are beasts, and there are many beasts that come and rise throughout history. There are beasts alive and well right now. The danger is to fawn over them and to become sycophants over them. And I think that's what we do, and I think that's one of the warnings of Revelation is that Babylon will creep its way into the church, and you will not really look like the lamb, but you'll look more like Babylon but you'll think that that's the solution, and that's that darkness piece again. The other piece I would say, and this is a pretty prominent quote, is just I think when you, um, your eschatology determines your ethics. So yeah, if you think God's just going to slay my own enemies and I don't have any role to play in being faithful or whatever, then yeah, it'll, it'll, that, that, what you think is going to happen in the end will determine the way that you live now. So there's lots of that, but I'm sure you have more profound things to say than that. Uh, just in terms of the imagination, uh, with the risk of getting, um, creating a, a political moment here. Please. I, I just see that the Israel-Hamas uh, issue is a failure of imagination. Yeah. Both sides. Because they see that the only way they can get what they want is through violence. Mm-hmm. And that's always the failure of the human person. And we could say, you know, along, you know, is there justified war and all that kind of thing. But we hurt ourselves when we enter into violence. And so I, yeah. 
I have great sympathy for, you know, for what's going on there in, in many ways. And I don't want to get political here. I'm just saying that no, it, uh, there's a failure of seeing, it's a good example. seeing through, we can see this historically, yeah. how many times wars were a failure of imagination. Yeah, I had a student when I was teaching through Revelation a couple of years ago who, uh, fairly new to faith, didn't know the scripture super well, but um, was reading the, this Revelation probably more faithfully than anyone else in the class, you know, new believer, curiosity reading, and just like was ready with the question, like right at the beginning of class, like, it sounds like Revelation saying that you win by dying. Like, yep, that's right. It sounds like the way you conquer is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your witness. And again, has our imagination been so assaulted that we think conquering looks different than the way Jesus himself conquered? And also that the way that he will come to conquer in the end would be so drastically different from that too. I think that's a failure on our part for sure. Can I yeah. ask a question of this group? What are your feelings tonight? Without having to say something technical or... Yeah, what are you feeling? Yeah. I mean, in all... <laughs> to be completely realistic, I yeah. think this is the first time I've been a part of or watched a conversation take place for Revelation that hasn't left me with just dread. Yeah. Every other... I feel like every other thing I've heard about it... Like, this is the first time I've heard it observed through the lens of of the light coming through instead of the impending darkness punishing humanity. Yeah, mm -hmm. supposed to do that. Wow. That's I often you. say chest-swelling hope that doesn't use the mechanisms of this age to accomplish right-making. Yeah. What I said to Cody uh, when we were talking about this, um, it, it's always been my feeling that we over-sentimentalize <laughs> Christmas. So, and I love the sentimental. I, I've got eggnog in my fridge right now. Come I love on. all that stuff. But we over-sentimentalize Christmas and we over-militarize uh, Revelation. And the truth is that Christmas itself, the first coming, was a pretty intense moment. Yeah, it was. It's pretty intense. And the surprise at the end is how the emergence of Christ at the end... It, it, he is full of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Love, joy, and peace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he doesn't give that up. So thank you for your comment, because I think this is... We have to see the same Jesus that came yeah. as the same Jesus that's coming back. Mm -hmm. I, I think I do want to say, too, where I'm, where I'm sympathetic is, and again, this, this used to be like anger, and now it's become sympathy, which is I just don't think people have been taught how to read apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so because of that, then they literalize all the militaristic imagery, even though, again, the best scholar to have ever written on Revelation, I think most scholars alive today agree with this, Richard Borkham would say, this is all militaristic imagery in a non, it subverts your expectations. The military isn't what you think they are, you know, and the way the lamb conquers, not the way you think he conquers. So, yeah, thank you. That... But th that's what Jesus was doing from the beginning when he was proclaiming a kingdom. Well, yeah, he's... Because that kingdom language always in the ancient mind was someone who would take land and yep. subvert people. Well, this is why I, uh, I translated for us tonight, instead of king of kings, I translated emperor of emperors. Yeah. Because in the first century, that, that John is right, that his name is emperor of emperors and lords of lords, and he's declaring the empire of God. Sounds pretty sus to the Romans, you know? <laughs> Another king, different empire going on over here. And Jesus is given campaign speeches in the backwaters of Galilee for God's kingdom. That's, that's politically subversive, for sure. Is there anybody else who wants to express a feeling or a thought or an aha or 
here it reminds you of something or whatever's been going through your mind. Uh, this language of kingdom, or uh, I, I guess uh, this language of royalty, uh, this, this thing of uh, authority, we were uh, talking about this uh, in one of our prayer meetings, and uh, we were noticing that Jesus does seem to have a lot of these uh, monikers ascribed to him, mm -hmm. because he is, that, that is what he is. But at the same time, uh, we were reading through the First Nations version, which doesn't use any of that language at all. Mm -hmm. And it, in a sense, it's almost like toppling the same, the very empire that yeah. language that we normally would ascribe to Jesus. We, it almost kind of reveals something of our current moments and our current, uh, let's say, let's say, our fascination with militarism and trying to trying to be the top dog, yeah. as opposed to letting letting Jesus, the way of Jesus, be the thing that guides us and leads us yeah. and, and, and helps us to embody it. So uh, whenever I read the, the language of the New Testament, and especially with the Evangelion or uh, these, these big words that are supposed to be militaristic, I get really scared because I'm like, I don't want, I don't want that type of yeah. light. I don't want to believe that of Jesus. But yet what you're describing to me is that uh, Jesus isn't that. Yeah. Jesus is the He's one not. who comes and gets slain and get, yeah. comes and dies, comes and subjects himself to the empire so that he flips it. Yeah. Yes. So thank, thank you for that. Yeah. I'll give you a feeling I've had since COVID, uh, which, you know, there's this funny convergence of you spend several years writing a book on Revelation and you're watching things happen in the world and you're watching the way people talk about Revelation and all these things. And the thing that has been uh, most perplexing for me is the ways in which people um, are trying to build their own iterations of the New Jerusalem right now, on the right and the left, and they're, what they fail to see is they're actually just building new iterations of Babylon, but they're celebrating it as though it's the New Jerusalem. And if there's one thing I know for sure is that our great hope comes from from outside of. It's it's it, yeah. It, we need apocalyptic intervention. <laughs> we're we're not gonna. The New Testament never describes us as building the kingdom. Witnessing to, seeking, pursuing, never building. I think that's intentional. Do you have a copy of your book here? I have a couple at the back. Nice. Kelly told me to bring some. Uh, I only had like two. I only have author copies. I don't have like so, uh, for sale copies. But. So uh, one of our best New Testament scholars, Scott McKnight, who's always been a favorite of mine um, as I've read him through the years, and Cody uh, co-authored a book uh, with Scott McKnight, Revelation for the Rest of Us. So highly recommended. I read through it early this fall. Uh, I would also say Eugene Peterson. Yeah, Reverse Thunder. Uh, Reverse Thunder is one of the great books. I have a friend who actually entered into PhD work because of that book. It's a great book. Yeah, and uh, it's, he talks about the, po the prophetic, no, he talks about uh, theopoetics. Yeah. Uh, po poetical or poetry, what am I? God-oriented poetry. Yeah, God-oriented poetry. Yeah. Theological poetry. Basically. Is what John is. John is a theologian and poet. That's mm. what uh, Peterson is saying. So those are two very highly recommended books that will shift you and reclaim your Jesus, uh, the authentic Jesus for you. Because, you know, as the big point for me, I think, it always is it's the same Jesus that was yeah. that showed himself in suffering love 
mm. is the same Jesus who's yeah. coming back to put it to right. Uh, and he will do so in a peaceable way that brings justice. Yes. Evil itself will be done in. By the sword that proceeds from his mouth. But I love what you said there. It's not all new things. It's all things new. It's the reclamation of everything that is good and human and all the cultures and languages and gifts of the nations brought in together. Into the yeah, land. the same cargo that Rome is colonizing and stealing yeah. is now being brought in by the nations to the glory of God. Yeah. And they have not lost ethnic identity, no. but it's every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. Logan, you had something. Yeah, I was going to ask about um, political and the word of testimony. And yeah. The word that you know, proceeds from his mouth, or the sort of the word that from his mouth. I just like, how is that something that is victorious? Like, what is the means for that to be? Exactly. Um, to be like, a, I don't know, a conqueror. Like, or like, I don't like, I don't know. Like, what is the means for? word to overcome. So we are, uh, witness is a big theme in Revelation. Um, like the, where we get the word martyr from. So our translations will uh, change between witness, martyr, testimony, but it's all the same word in Greek. So it's a theme that John plays out again and again. So we overcome by dipping our robes in the blood of the lamb and then witnessing to the lamb. Again, witnessing. Uh, the sword that proceeds from his mouth is, uh, it's Isaiah 11, it's Isaiah 49. There's a little bit about this in the footnote, again, if you're a rabbit trail person, or just throw the hand out away, I don't care. Uh, here's what I would say, Logan, at the heart of it. If God can speak creation into existence by his word, then he can make justice by his word. And it's a sharp sword because it must cut through. And again, the sword that proceeds from his mouth, the dragon is a mudslinger. He deals in deception and lies. We follow the one with the sword that cuts through and who ultimately will speak the word of justice that brings judgment. Uh, but that judgment is about bringing justice because if the new Jerusalem is going to come, then all the Babylons of this world must be cleared away. But notice then, those who themselves are, in a mysterious sense, partnering with Babylon are, are bringing in gifts into that new city. So God's work is mysterious to John, and it will subvert our expectation. Thanks for tuning into the Converters Podcast. We hope this message has blessed you to think about a greater hope during this Advent season. Make sure to check out the book Cody co-authored with Scott McKnight, entitled Revelation for the Rest of Us. So blessings, glad tidings, and Merry Christmas.